0: Good morning. I bring you greetings from Pastor Bailey, who is away in Michigan working on a book and probably will be for a couple of weeks. Please pray for him that he'll be able to get this work done. He's getting close. And uh, we do pray that God will provide that work to be done and strengthen him for it. If you have a Bible, turn to Acts chapter 26. Actually, a very short scripture lesson this morning, coming from a context in uh, more than one chapter of the book of Acts, The scripture lesson is Paul's response at a certain point to King Agrippa where he says to the king, consequently King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision. And this is Paul's response after telling the king about Jesus' call on his life. And in order for us to get an idea of the context of what Paul is saying to Agrippa, I want to go through the context surrounding this but i don't want to read it it's three chapters long i want to just give you the bullet points of what's happening with paul from the time he goes to jerusalem and is in the temple and then is there's a riot and he's arrested to the time he's sent to rome it's a time period of two years plus something but it happens very quickly and it all seems like, except for a phrase that said he sat in prison for two years, it all seems like it's happening just in a real quick, short period of time, okay? So let's go through it real quick. Paul goes down to Jerusalem. If you remember, the church leaders told him that he should prove to everybody that he was a good Jew and that he should pay his vows and do certain things. So he does that, and he goes into the temple, and there he was accosted, and there was a riot breaking out, and they started to beating, beating him, and they wanted to kill him. So a commander of the Roman cohort there, a cohort is a thousand men, this man named Claudius Lucius, steps in and rescues Paul and brings him back toward the barracks. And there at the entrance of the barracks, Paul asks for permission to speak to the people. So he speaks to the people, he gets up on the steps and he starts speaking to the people. And in the context of speaking to the people, he tells them this part of his story about how Jesus is sending him to the Gentiles, To bring the gospel to the Gentiles. That wasn't something they liked to hear. The Jews didn't like the Gentiles, and that really pushed them over the edge. And so the people got really mad, and they got really mad and did something that I hope I never see any of you so angry to do. They were taking dirt off the ground and throwing it up in the air, and, you know, pulling on their coats, and they were just very, very agitated. They'd lost control. So once again, Claudius Lysias steps in and rescues Paul, and he's pulled back into the barracks. And in this context, he discloses to Claudius that he is a Roman citizen. So Claudius says, okay, I'm going to give you some freedom because you're a Roman citizen. So he, re- he releases him, kind of, and he arranges for the Jews to come together, uh, Paul to come together with the council. And we see Paul meeting with the council and Paul starts to tell his story again. And right off the bat, the high priest says, slap him. So somebody reaches and slaps him across the mouth. And that's about where Paul's story doesn't get to be told anymore at that point. It's quite an interruption. And then Paul realizes who's in the room, Sadducees and Pharisees. And Paul, being a Pharisee and having a hope in the resurrection of Christ, says to the men who are assembled there, It's because of the resurrection that I'm here. And of course, that causes another fight. I don't think any dust was thrown, but it was quite a tumult. They thought Paul might get killed again. So again, Claudius comes in and rescues Paul. Claudius is a good guy to have around, isn't he? What a provision of God. So Claudius rescues Paul. Then there's a plot to kill Paul. They decide they're going to kill him as he is traveling along the road somewhere. They're going to make a, a plan and kill him. And some guys take a vow, they're going to kill him. So Claudius hears about this story. <clears throat> and this way is the it's the last time Claudius rescues Paul. Claudius then takes some soldiers and writes a letter to the governor, and he sends the soldiers with Paul in the letter to Felix. And so Paul is delivered out of Jerusalem to the city of Caesarea where Felix is presiding over court. Paul comes to Felix, Uh, Ananias the high priest and a man named Tertullus, an attorney, come and they bring charges against Paul. Paul tells his story again to everybody Felix listens, then he says, well, I think I'll just wait and listen to what Claudius says when he comes around. We never hear that Claudius actually does come along, okay? Paul is still kept there in jail under the guarding of Felix. He has some liberty. His friends can come and visit him. He meets with Felix. At one time, he meets with Felix and Felix's wife, and they and Paul talks to them about righteousness, about self-control, and about the judgment to come. And Felix is freaked out. He's scared. Because Paul's telling him about God's judgment and about what God expects of people, that they be holy, and that they must be holy to stand before God. And, of course, we know Paul has the answer for Felix, that he can be holy in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, but Felix doesn't get that part. He just doesn't want to listen, and he's scared. So Paul stays there with Felix for a while longer. In fact, for two years, Paul's in prison, and occasionally Felix will come and have him come and talk to him. But other than that, Paul's in prison two years, okay? He has kind of uh, access to his friends. They can come in and visit him. Two years goes by. Felix is replaced as governor by a guy named Portius Festus. And the irony of this guy's name, as he's the governor over the Jews, his name kind of literally means pork festival. Okay? Which, what were his parents thinking? Right? We thought some of you were naming your children. Funny. So, Festus again has the Jews come and approach him, and they want to bring charges against Paul. But they have this uh, plan They're going to, you know, legal stuff hasn't changed much. They're going to change the venue of the trial. So they say, we're going to change the venue of the trial. We want the trial to be in Jerusalem. And so Festus thinks, okay, that's no problem. But see, the Jews had an idea that they would kill Paul on the way. They'd have an ambush and kill him on the way. And Paul knows about this. So Festus comes to Paul and says, are you willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial? And Paul says, no, no, and he, he, he takes his legal out. He says, I appeal to Caesar. I'm a citizen of Rome. I'll appeal to Caesar. I'm not going to go to Jerusalem. Either he knew he shouldn't go to Jerusalem or he knew that he would get killed if he went to Jerusalem. I don't know, but he, he took his legal out and he said, I'm not going to go to Jerusalem. I appeal to Caesar. So Festus says, Okay, you'll go to Caesar. And after a while, Paul's still there, King Agrippa and his wife Bernice drop by to pay their respects to Festus, who's the new governor. And Festus tells them about Paul, so Agrippa wants to hear Paul, so Festus arranges it, they all sit down, and they're listening to Paul, and again, Paul tells his story. And this time, he tells a great deal of it. He tells about Christ calling him and what he called him to do. And he gets to a certain point, and he says, Agrippa, I, do not, I did not prove disobedient to to the heavenly vision. The heavenly vision was what he got on the road to Damascus. I was obedient to the heavenly vision. And in the context of talking about all of it, Festus just got fed up and he just said, you're a loony. You've been in this prison rotting for two years, all because of this? Because of this resurrection stuff? This is what's going on with you? You're a lunatic. Your great learning has driven you mad. And Paul says, no, no, Festus, I'm not mad. I am bringing you sober words. Sober words. And he said, Agrippa, you know the prophets. King, you know the prophets. You know what I'm saying is true. You know that this is what's supposed to happen. And Agrippa, you can just kind of imagine him there kind of uncomfortable. You know, you got Festus here. He's the governor. And Agrippa, Paul's got his number because Paul knows that Agrippa does know that it's true. And so Agrippa's sitting there and, he's, and he says, Well, do you think you can convince me in such a short time to become a Christian? And Paul says, I wish not just you but everybody in this room would have what I have, except for the handcuffs. They're not so much good, but I wish everybody here had what I have. And so you have Paul declaring his obedience. And you have him declaring it in a certain context here, in this time, the beginning of his time with the Romans. The Jews bringing charges, the Romans, him being delivered, the guys hearing the story, Paul telling his story again and again and again. We don't know what happened. In this short period of of the history, we're not told whether or not there were converts made. I assume that there were, since it says Paul could have visitors when he was in jail. I assume that people came to faith while Paul was there. But we're not told. But we are not told specifically whether any of these people that he talked to that are mentioned became converts. But they all had reactions to what he said. Paul was obedient to the heavenly vision that he had been given. And he had said to Agrippa, this is what Christ told me on the road to Damascus. He said, arise, stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you. Delivering you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. You're going to tell people how they can become my people. That's what Jesus says to Paul. And he says, I'm going to deliver you from the Jews. And we just saw how Paul was delivered from the Jews. One, two, three, four times. Just like that. God just provided him to be set free from them. Paul did what he had been commanded to do. He didn't just do it in this instance. He did it in all kinds of instances in his life. He talks about, he talks at one point, It gives a kind of list of the things that had happened to him in his ministry. He says, labors, imprisonments, beaten time without number, in danger of death, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes with the whip. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I spent in the deep. Now listen, anybody here, anybody here maybe have one of those things? Right? I mean, we would probably kind of walk around Hey, I was beaten by rods. (laughs) Nice that you can know me. Now, I mean, think about it. I mean, we might, I don't think any of us really probably have that exact, those exact things that have happened to us. But this was a regular thing in Paul's life because why was it a regular thing? Because he was obedient to the heavenly vision that he had been given. He was obedient. And as he was obedient, he often was in danger. He often had difficulty. He often had to be delivered from the Jews. And he often had to be delivered from a lot of other things. And God was faithful. God was good. God had told Paul through Ananias, right after his conversion, he said, I'm going to show him, Ananias, what he's going to suffer for my name's sake. And Paul had a vision of what that would be. And it was accomplished in his life. Paul was all in. Paul was all in. It was all or nothing. And Paul, it was, for Paul, it was all. What did it mean for him to be all in? Well, sometimes it's easier to understand the value of something by seeing how people react to it. That's why I'm choosing this section, because we have the reactions of many people here in the book of Acts in this short section. But it's easy to see the value of something by how people react to it. We had some friends in for dinner uh, Friday night. And we were sitting around in the living room talking about, um, uh, in our lives, people's uh, uh, confession of faith. Like their testimony. How you became a Christian. What happened to you. And so as we were talking about that, some people's testimony, it's very common that they're raised in families and they're brought to church. Many of us were that way. And they don't have a specific time where they say, I had this big t- experience of conversion. They just say, well, you know, I was raised in a family, and I just believed. I've believed. And then I, I thought, well, okay, as I'm talking there, I said, well, you know, well, how, how do we assess people who are raised that way? Because we want to see something in their lives where they're differentiating from their parents other than that. Uh, they finally go through the membership class, right? Or other than that, they just get baptized. Or, you know, we want to see things about them that show that they've dis- differentiated in some way from their parents. And it occurred to me that one of the most obvious and, and immediate ways in which you can assess whether someone has differentiated from their parents' faith and has a personal faith is that what? They suddenly bear the reproach of Jesus Christ personally. In other words, it's not their parents' actions that brings the the reproach for Jesus Christ on them vicariously through their parents, but it's their own actions, their own words, their own deeds. As they engage with the world, they themselves are, are opposed or they themselves are reacted to, even as Paul was reacted to here in this situation. We look at our lives and we assume that if someone has a faith in Jesus Christ, there ought to be some indication in the response of the people around them, in the words that they say, responding to those words, and also responding to how they act and how they live. Our lives should have meaning to the people around us. So how did the people react to Paul and to the heavenly vision, or his uh, obedience to the heavenly vision? Well, the zealous Jews wanted him to die. They wanted him to die because uh, they hated Christ. They were blind to the reality of Christ. And in fact, not only that, they they uh, they were hateful of the implications of Christ on the world that Christ would be loving the gentiles they hated the gentiles they were above the gentiles and so they shouldn't they didn't they just didn't want anything to do with it gentiles you know at that one point that was what made them so angry paul says i was sent to the gentiles Wah! dust in the air right and the fact is that they were blind They were blind. Paul says in Romans 10, he says, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation, that is, his fellow Jews. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That is, our righteousness as Christians comes from Jesus Christ. We are justified to God. We are commended to God because of the righteousness of Christ, not because of our own righteousness. We can't be commended to God for our own righteousness. It's only through the righteousness of Christ. He's perfect. He perfectly obeyed the law. There was no sin in him. And God brought him to this world, sent him to this world to become that atoning sacrifice for us, to be that substitute so that we could be justified before God and that we could have righteousness. But see, the Jews didn't see this. Their eyes were blind. It's like they had, you know, really, really dark sunglasses that you couldn't see through at all. Okay? And they were completely blind and they couldn't see it. They thought their own righteousness would do the job. And so they had ways of you know, doing things that would be proving to God that they were righteous. They would act in certain ways and do certain things, and that would be the proof that they were righteous. And this isn't changed. It happens all around us today, all the time. We know people all around us who... For their God, whoever that may be, it may not be the God, the God of the scriptures, the one and only God who made heaven and earth. It may be their God, small g, that they're trying to serve. But even their God, small g, they will try to do righteous acts to commend themselves to him. Like recycling. Or random acts of kindness. Or whatever it is. And even if their God is the God, capital G, the almighty God, They might try to do things to commend themselves to God. They might try to work really hard to not smoke cigarettes or to work really hard to not, you know, uh, uh, go over the speed limit or whatever they want to do that they think that this will prove to God that they were good enough to reconcile themselves to him. And, you know, they just don't get it. There was a man visiting here a few weeks ago, and he was out in in the front smoking a cigarette. And I, I didn't know him, so I went up to introduce myself to him. And right away I realized he was incredibly ashamed that he was smoking a cigarette. And I thought, oh, no, how am I going to make this man feel comfortable? Because I don't care if he smoked a cigarette. Maybe I should have asked him if he had one for me. I don't know. <laughs> I didn't do it that way. I basically said, look, it's not, he, you know, he was apologetic. I'm sorry, I know this is awful, it's, uh, you know. And I'm saying to him, look, no, 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 it's not about cigarettes, you understand. If you knew the, the stuff in my heart, you would realize that you would take cigarettes over that stuff any day of the week. And that's how we have to understand the idea of having righteousness of our own before God. It's just impossible. There's no possible way. And the Jews didn't see it because they were blind. And so often we don't see it or we kind of you know, have lapses of blindness. You know, some of us, this has happened to us once in a while. We just have a lapse of temporary blindness, and we decide that we're going to try to do this. And, and then we, one day we wake up, and, and it's uh, Communion Sunday, and we look at it, and we say, <laughs> what was I thinking? What was I thinking? That I could be righteous before God in something I would do? No. No. We can only be justified Through the righteousness of Jesus Christ, that's the only way. And the Jews did not understand it, and we must. Some men were frightened by his words, so Paul spoke to Felix, the governor, and Felix was frightened because he heard about the judgment. And I think about all of the stuff that's going on, you know, this past week, uh, the sins of our city and the gross sins and, and things that happen in our city, and I think of how we, we proudly promote and we proudly stand and make declarations like, you know, if you op- oppose homosexual marriage, uh, history is going to remember you poorly. That was the statement. And it's in the, it's in the Indianapolis paper, and it's in the Bloomington paper, and it was made by our mayor. And I'm thinking to myself, What are you thinking? What are you thinking? There is an eternal God. There will come a day of judgment. His law doesn't change. We all of us will stand in front of him and give an account for our lives. History? If if this world turns on for 500 years, how do you think history will remember this time? How is history going to remember Europe in a hundred years when the historians writing the books will all be Muslims? Do you understand? History. History is the day God opens the books and we stand in front of him and he gives the judgment for what we have done and what we have not done. That's history. That will be the day, the real reckoning. No fudging the books. That's history. And that's what Paul declared to Felix, and Felix was frightened, and rightfully so. And so we should be frightened, and we should live in fear of God and go to him repenting of our sins and seeking forgiveness, because the psalm says that God is to be feared because with him is the forgiveness of sins, only with him. Some men thought Paul was out of his mind. Festus, Paul, your great learning has driven you mad. Here you've been in prison for two years, and it's about what? the Resurrection? The resurrection? And Paul says, look, he doesn't say it right then, but he says, look, to us, he says, through the Holy Spirit, if there is no resurrection of the dead, we're the people most to be pitied. If we have hope in Christ for this life only... We should be pitied, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. We're Christians. To us belongs the resurrection of the dead forever, eternally. Why is it considered incredible among you people, Paul says, if God does raise the dead? That's what he says to Agrippa and Festus. I remember Andy Rooney. You guys remember Andy Rooney, the CBS uh, 60 Minutes guy? He was a God-hater. And I remember one time he was talking about things he likes and things he doesn't like, and he said, I love Christmas, I hate Easter. And Christians... For us, we love them both, but boy, what's the really good one? (laughs) If Christ would have just come and been born and then left, that would have been interesting, and we would have died in our sins. But he came, was born, and died for us, and was raised from the dead by the power of God, the first fruits of the resurrection. And we will follow with him. Easter. Oh, yeah. Give me Easter. Christmas had to happen, but give me Easter. Some were almost persuaded by Paul, and Agrippa was one of these. And it happened again as he was in Rome in Acts 28. The Jews came to him in his lodging there, lodging there, and he was speaking to them. And he says, uh, he was trying to explain to them from the law of Moses and from the prophets. From morning until evening, it says. And some were being persuaded, and others would not believe. And when they did not agree with one another, they began leaving. After Paul had spoken one parting word. This is the word he spoke. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your fathers, saying, Go to this people and say, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. Almost. They almost believed. Agrippa almost believed. All around us, people talk about God. And they talk about this part of God, this aspect of God, this thing about God, this thing about what God says. You hear them all the time in all of the Facebook stuff and all of the comment sections and all those things. You hear them talking. And they swerve into God and swerve into God, and they almost believe. They almost believe. But almost is not good. Almost doesn't cut it. We must place our faith in Jesus Christ, God's Son. We must believe and be saved. Paul saw a light on the road to Damascus. He did not prove disobedient to that heavenly vision. First, or Second Corinthians three. I'm sorry, Second Corinthians 4, verses 5 and 6. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Christ's sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Paul saw a heavenly vision on the road to Damascus. It was an actual light. It struck him blind. All the guys were with him were like, Whoa! Right? But God has said to us that to every man who believes on Christ, he gives a heavenly vision. He shows in our hearts the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Every one of us. If you're here this morning and you are a believer calling on the name of the Lord, confessing that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, you have had The knowledge of God shone in your hearts through the face of Jesus Christ. You have had a heavenly vision. You would not be able to say that otherwise. You would not be able to be that believer otherwise. God had to take the scales from your eyes. God had to shine the light into your heart to make that possible for you. And so the question for us this morning is, have we been obedient to that heavenly vision? Have you been obedient to that heavenly vision? Have you confessed Christ? Are you like Paul, all in? All in. I've been obedient to that heavenly vision. Would you say that if someone asked you? I've been all in. Christ called me, and I've responded. How do people respond to you? We've seen how they respond to Paul. How do they respond to you? What do they see in you as you live in obedience, as you speak, as you order your life around the laws of God, around the commands of Christ? Sweeter than honey. Is that what they are? Are they good? Is God's law good? Is the command of Christ to love one another good? How do people respond to you? Do they see the demonstration of your obedience to your heavenly vision of Jesus Christ? One of, our, one of our mothers-to-be was in Walmart a couple weeks ago, and she was in the checkout line, and she's, the days are accomplished that she should be delivered, let's put it that way. <laughs> and so she's, she's in the checkout line, and uh, the lady looks at her and says, so, uh, when are you due? And she tells the lady when she's due, and the lady says, oh, that's good. Do you have any other children? Is it your first one? No, I have four more. This is our fifth one. The lady stops, and this is what she says. Do you go to Clear Note Church? <laughs> and so the lady says, well, do you know these other women? Do you know this person, this person? I don't know any of them. I just know if a pregnant woman comes through, I ask them if they go to Clear Note Church. And this woman had four children of her own, and it was a nice experience. And it isn't an exact uh, demonstration of obedience to God that you have a pregnant belly. That isn't always the case, but sometimes that is the case. And so what happens? This is a good exchange for a young mother. How many of you mothers have gone into Walmart or other stores around the city and had your children with you and had people look at you with just disdain and scorn? I know you have. I'm sorry. That's awful. It's awful. I read a wonderful uh, speech given by Teddy Roosevelt to, I should tell you where I found it. It was referenced in a book called What to Expect When No One's Expecting. And it's a book on demographics, and I haven't read it yet, but I'm going to. And it's very, very sober. This man talks about uh, how pets have replaced children and what that means to our culture and our society and all the implications of having a childless society. And, uh, and he references a speech by Teddy Roosevelt. So I went and found the speech that Roosevelt made 100 years ago to the National League of Mothers. And I, I, gave a, I sent a copy to Hannah. Did you read it, Hannah? Is she here? Did you, were you encouraged? Annie read it, too, and she was very encouraged. And if you want a copy, Han, I'll send it to you, okay, with my compliments. But it was the most encouraging thing you can imagine from the President of the United States, but it was 100 years ago. You couldn't imagine it being said today. What he says to mothers is just wonderful. What he says to women is wonderful. But to live faithful in this day and to live in obedience to the Heavenly vision you have received as a woman and as a man requires that you live in such a way that the world will often scorn you and turn away from you. They'll call you a fanatic. They'll hate you. Some of them will wish you dead. And in this world, some places, some of them will kill you. but we are to be faithful to the heavenly calling that we have in Christ Jesus, to the vision that we have in Christ Jesus. God has made his light to shine in our hearts. We can see his glory in the face of Christ. We understand the meaning of the song that the choir sang this morning. We look at this table and know that we receive from God sustenance, life, spiritual energy, vitality just as if we were branches connected to a vine that's what jesus says i am the branch and i am the vine and you are the branches and you must abide in me and anyone who abides in me will produce much fruit they will have life why because my power my life from my sacrifice and my resurrection will flow into you and you will have what i give you and that's what's available to us and so how are you today how are we Christians? Are we abiding in Christ? Are we faithful and obedient to that heavenly vision that we have received? Do we need to do some confession? Do we need to do some repentance? Do we need to call on God and ask him to deliver us from our sins? Yes, we do. And it's our privilege to be able to do this here and This morning, at this table, through God's kindness and the sacrifice of his son. And so let's do this together this morning. Let's ask God to make us faithful. Elders, would you come, please?